Good morning, everybody. I preach in English every two years, and I speak Spanish the whole, the rest of the time. So, <laughs> well, thank you. Thanks, God, to be with you, and I hope it will be a blessing for you and the teaching this morning. Um, my text will be on verses 13 to 16 of First Peter. And um, I'd like to give you an introduction. I, I read it from somewhere, and finally I found it was in a Washington Post, uh, but it's, it's wonderful. A woman was diagnosed with a terminal illness and given three months to live. She asked her pastor to come to her home and to discuss her final wishes. Uh, she told him which songs she what is sung at her funeral and what is scriptures to read and which outfit she wanted to be buried in. The pastor was surprised. The woman explained, in all my years of attending church socials and potlucks, because she wanted to put a, she wanted to put a fork in the, in the casket, and uh, the pastor was surprised, and the woman explained, in all my years of attending church socials and potluck dinners, I always remember that when the dishes of the main course were being cleared, someone would inevitably lean over and say, keep your fork. It was my favorite time, because I knew something better was coming like chocolate cake or dip dish apple pie, something wonderful. So I want people to see me there in the cassette with a fork in my hand and wonder, what's with the fork? Then I, wanted, I want you to tell them, keep your fork because the best is yet to come. The pastor's eye welled up with tears of joy. He bid the woman goodbye. He realized that she had a better grasp of heaven than he did and knew something better was coming. At a funeral, when people asked him why she was holding a fork, the pastor told them of the conversation he had had with a woman before she died. He said he could not stop thinking about the fork and knew they probably would not be able to stop thinking about it, either and he was right. Keep your fork. The best is yet to come. First Peter, brothers, is the epistle that reminds us the best is yet to come. But it does in the midst of suffering. You should read the whole first epistle of Peter and you'll see a lot of verses about suffering in many ways. The best, the best of what is to come uh, in First Peter, of course, is Christ and heaven, Amen. our hope. Anybody can read First Timothy, chapter one, first one, to me, for me. First Peter one, one. Just don't be open mind. The Bible in English here. <laughs> you can read First Peter one, one. Peter, an apostle of... Oh, sorry. First Timothy 1.1. 1, 1. That is Christ, our hope, on the verse that 
What's this going to read? First, Pete, first Timothy 1. 1, 1. Yeah. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Yeah. Christ is our hope. Heaven is our hope. And heaven is our hope because Christ is in heaven. Absolutely. So the theme of First Peter has to do with experiencing God's grace in the midst of suffering. It begins by speaking of a multiplied grace in chapter 1, verse 2, and ends by reminding them that this is the true grace of God which you stand in, verse, in chapter 5 and verse 12. And there's nothing else that keeps hope alive in us but the grace of God. His multiplied kindness and the certainty of the resurrection. Now, in First Peter, there are two main sections that you can see while you're reading. First Peter, you can mark it. Make up the letter, two sections, make up the letter, and much, much like Paul, but not the same. Peter points out different indicatives of faith from verse, from verse 3 of chapter 1 until verse 10 of chapter 2. And then he concludes with imperatives of faith beginning in chapter 2 and verse 11 until chapter 5 and verse 11. In these indicatives, Peter points out that believer possesses, number one, a precious salvation in chapter 1, verse 3 to verse 12. Number two, a new life in chapter 1, verse 13 until verses 25 and a chosen priesthood in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Then on the other hand, in the imperative section, Peter addresses believers and focuses on their relationship to the word and within marriage in chapter 2, verses 11, until chapter 4, verse 11. And then on their responsibilities in their relationship to each other in the church, beginning in chapter 4, verse 12, and until chapter 5, verse 11. That is, you can, you can read it with these uh, main sections and you'll find that it is helpful to understand the letter. Thus, the letter places great emphasis on godly conduct even in the midst of tribulation. That's, that's, a, that's a thing in First Peter. And the interesting thing is that the conjunction, the conjunction of the indicative section with the imperative section is one of the highest points in the letter. I refer to chapter 2, verse, verses 9 through 11. Wesley, you can read it again. Chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Yeah, you can see that in this verses, which points to the identity of Christ, of the Christians, the identity of the Christian, it is one of the highest points of the whole argument that began in chapter 1, verse, verse 13. 
as if Peter was saying to them, you have a living hope and you have been set to shine because you are a chosen nation, you are God's people. So the imperatives start in verse 11. But before that, he's showing them where they are standing. And it is in that, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that leads Peter to give to them one of the most important imperatives. I beg you, you are strangers and pilgrims. Behave as such. Abstain from fleshly lusts. You have to do that connection. Peter is wanting them to know that. And notice the first purpose connection Peter makes with this, with this exhortation is the fact that people would murmur about them as evildoers. That's a very connection. You, you, you find it in verse 11. And they should live in such a way that God would be glorified by their conduct. This conduct is what Peter wants them to have and the one he describes in the different settings starting in chapter 1, verse 13, with authorities and master-servants relationships in the, and then in marriage life where there were unbelieving husbands or unbelieving wives starting in chapter 3, verse 1. And in the midst of this exhortation in chapter 3, you will find the ultimate example to follow, which is Christ Jesus. And Peter emphasizes that Christ's example is the categorical demonstration that believers were called to suffer sharp and painful antagonism for the sake of the hope of being approved by God as was Jesus Christ himself. This is the necessary example before approaching Peter's conclusion in verse 8 that we have the reading this morning. Because in 3H, we approach a conclusion, not the conclusion of the epistle, of course, but the word finally indicate a conclusion. It is the conclusion of the above exhortations. And starting with this, and using, you see, we read from 1 Peter 3, but you can find Psalm 34 there. Psalm 34, verses 12 to 16. Why is Peter using that? This is important. We can connect these Old Testament verses or texts. Why is the author using that in this moment? Well, he confirms the, with the Old Testament that the blessing of God rests upon him who abstains from evil deeds and the evil use of words and practices, practices, okay? Or practices? Practices righteousness. I always had a problem with it, that word. Practices righteousness. Because this is exactly in Psalm 34 what David did with Saul in the setting and context. When he wrote Psalm 34, he was chasing by Saul. And Saul wanted to kill him, but David was blessing him. And this is the context, and Peter is using that for, for some reason. Now, Peter is going to expose the reality of the possible suffering and how believers should have, should have to respond. So note with me um, first thing that 
in verses 13 to 14, that in 1 Peter 3, that hope coexists with suffering. Hope coexists with suffering. Brother, living and defending our hope, that is the title of the sermon, living and defending our hope that does not exempt us from suffering. Suffering is not exempt for the Christian. The New Testament in many ways teaches us this truth. We try to avoid it, but it's a reality. It's a reality. It is a basic issue of life in this fallen world. We do not possess an antidote against the various sufferings that we can observe around the world. Illness, tragedies, pain, sorrows. And of course, I am finishing the book of Job today. I'm doing a chronological reading of the Bible. I'm finishing the book of Job, and the, the book of Job refreshes our memory about the sufferings of godly people and godly women. They suffer. And suffering uh, it coexists with, with hope, or hope coexists with suffering. This is a very, is a very misunderstood matter, and it's, it's a sting. It's, it's, it's ever, even sharpened in a, if a prosperity gospel penetrates, like in Argentina, prosperity gospel is, a, is everywhere. And when it, it gets into the church and it penetrates, in, it changes in, in many things the way of thinking of believers are thinking about it. It's so, so dangerous, so dangerous. And, and sometimes the people would deny that. Uh, they, they will not say that they are from prosperity gospel, but they began to think that they would not suffer because they are Christians, don't having pains or whatever. But following, following the good pays off, right? This is the better thing. Following the good pays off. Following good, it has to do with conscience. Following good has to do with conscience. Something which Peter speaks in chapter two, verse uh, verse. Uh, chapter 2, verse 19. I have the, the ASB Bible here. Let me time to find it. Chapter 2, verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when uh, mindful of God, one endures sorrow with the suffering unjustly. And then chapter 3, verse 16 and 21. Well, we'll, we'll already read chapter, uh, verse 16. But 21, it says, um, Baptism which corresponds to this now saves us not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 14, chapter 3 of 1 Peter, he talks about situations that involve suffering for righteousness' sake. And it is, in all probability, something that reminds him of what he heard. Remember, at the foot, at the foot of the mountain, from the lips of Jesus in Matthew five ten, persecution, suffering, you're blessed. Probably Peter was thinking about that, was re- remembering that. It is also it is also what Paul said in Second Timothy. I'm going to read from this Second Timothy chapter three. And verse 12, this is a wonderful verse. I, I already done teaching uh, Second Timothy in my church, and this is one of the main verses, important verse in chapter 3, 
verse 12, so little words, wow, <laughs> uh, letter. It says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So we have to expect it. We have to expect it. And that, this includes the several trials, of course, and of First Peter chapter 1 and verse 6, several trials we will face and the same sufferings of uh, people around the world in chapter 5 and verse 9. That we, we, we should know that people are suffering around the world like us. We are not the only ones. So I have no doubt that the manifestation of these sufferings uh, where the people that were suffering, the, the, the readers of the letter, uh, were visible issues. Uh, in fact, the Emperor Nero was starting the persecution. It was not a big deal right now, but it, it was starting the persecution. Situ situations and circumstances centered around externals, being slapped for doing good and suffering, like in chapter 2, verse 20, and the fire, and the suffering of chapter 4, verse 12, they should not be surprised about that. So in connection with this, Christ himself relates suffering to those who kill the body. Remember that? You don't be afraid. They, they only can kill the body. They can't touch your soul. You can't touch your, anything else but your body. But, and this is the glory thing. In chapter 3, verse 14 of 1 Peter, their reaction that Peter requires them to possess, this is important, has to do with an internal commotion. Be not afraid of them, neither be troubled. So the persecution is external. I'm, I'm preoccupied of your internal reaction to suffering or fear or persecution be not be not afraid of them neither be troubled so the problem to be solved in persecution is not external is internal and there are two words that peter used there in the chap in this verse uh, from the greek is phobeo was phobia in spanish i don't know in, in english but phobeo and phobia is an, is an emotion motivated by the expectation of something bad or the perception of imminent danger. Like when you're walking peacefully and out of nothing, a dog barking, jumps in proud of you, showing the teeth like that, you feel something inside, right? This is what Peter is talking about. And the, the other word is, is, is tarazo, don't be troubled, is tarazo in Greek, I don't know how to pronounce it, but it literally means to shake back and forth, and that's to agitate and stir, like, do you remember the poem in chapter 5 of, uh, of John, that the angel went down and, and moving the waters, and that's just the word using agitate here. Most New Testament uses of terrazzo are figurative and describe the state of one's mind as, as agitated or experiencing inner commotion. It's interesting. The passive voice is always used in the New Testament with a negative meaning. He conveyed the sense of emotional disturbance or inner turmoil so that one is restless, plunged, or plunged in confusion or disturbed by various emotions, including excitement, perplexity, fear, or 
restlessness. This, my brethren, this, my brethren, is the condition of many believers today, right? They are trembling, fearing, but, but we are not tied to a stake to be burned. We are not tied to a stake to be burned because of what we said, because we are coming to church, because we believe in woman and manhood, or because we do not join in certain activities, conversations and amusement practiced by co-workers, for example. Nobody's going to be in a stake to put on fire for that, but we tremble, we fear. But this is a battle, and it's a battle of fears. The battle is a battle of fears. And the question is, whom will we fear most? That's it. The fear of men that we were talking yesterday with was the fear of men or the fear of God. We, we know a lot about the fear of God in the Bible. But maybe we don't understand very well. In fact, we'll need all, the whole life to understand and believe and, and rest in the fear of God and, and, and keep more, have more wisdom fearing, fearing God and um, keep away from sin. You know, the fear of God is for the unconverted and for the Christian, two different things. Two different things. It is like the boy who ran away from the dog out of fear. And the owner of the dog said to him, if you run out of fear, you want to bite your heels. If you run towards him, the dog will want to play it and you will enjoy it. And we need God's fear. We need it for our sanctification. You remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. It's a very important text about sanctification and the fear of God. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion, completion in the fear of God. So don't try to have sanctification in your life about, of, apart from the fear of God. So we have sufferings and hope coexists with suffering and hope coexists with trembling, with many things that happen in our life. But we need to understand that, second, that our hope is anchored in the heart. Verse 15. Our hope is anchored in our heart. This is what it says. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. First things has to do with the importance of the heart. You can read it there. The first thing has to do with the importance of the heart. 
How does Peter begin his high point in these verses with a contrast? It's in Spanish, I don't know, in English, I don't remember. But, yeah, it's a contrast. Contrasts in the Bible are wonderful. One of the most important contrasts in the Bible is found in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4. But God, Martin Lowe Jones has a wonderful sermon in that verse, that two words, but God. It's a contrast. It's wonderful. And here in First Peter, we pay attention. This is the concrete and primary imperative of the portion we are considering. So, what is Peter saying? What does he mean by sanctifying God, the Lord, or Christ as Lord, or Christ as the Lord? What does it mean? Because it's in the heart of the of the portion of the verse of the thinking of Peter about being persecuted, don't fear men, but sanctify Christ, sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. It's, we need to understand what does it mean. What does it mean? And this is the creative center of the passage. This is the creative creative center of the passage. The whole surrounding context is the result and the consequence is the source that originates everything. I mean, if Christ is sanctified in the heart as Lord, if everything in the deep and secret places of life bows before his throne, if through all the intervening hours of the day, the endless procession of mystic forces in the soul bow reverently before his dominion, what will be the quality of our affairs? What will be the outstanding characteristics of life? That last part is a a quote of a man called John Henry Jowett. Wonderful. You know, Peter is using a verse from the Old Testament. He's using Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12 and 13. God, God be your fear. The Lord be your fear is what Peter quotes in, and applies here. In, in, context, in context of Isaiah, Isaiah was encouraging the Jews in the face of an impending invasion of the Assyrian armies, along with the hostile confederacy united in Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel against Judah. So Isaiah says to the king of, 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 of um, the southern kingdom, do not fear them. Do not fear them. Fear God. Fear God. And Peter is taking that verse and using it in this context because he, he understands that the, the situation is, is about the same. There are unbelievers, uh, Nero or the government persecuting them. Don't fear them. Fear the Lord. This is the, what you need. So Peter takes God's promises as applicable also to Christians of any age who might be suffering persecution. But we do agree, we do agree that the setting of this exhortation is surrounded by the atmosphere of fear, right? We understand this. We we can see that, that Peter is exhorting them in a surrounding atmosphere of, of atmosphere is okay, atmosphere of fear. We we don't we understand that. Different kinds of fear. 
We, we have different kinds of fear. Maybe you fear men. Maybe you fear uh, talking about Christ, but reasons, I don't know, maybe fear of men, maybe losing your, 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 your job. I don't know, many fears. Many fears, different fears. But it, they shuts us up, and that's a problem. Our mouths are shut it. We don't speak about Jesus. We don't, uh, we don't show our faith. We don't show the people we believe in a God and that we have a hope. It isn't, isn't interesting that Peter talks about this, of being feared. This is very interesting. You remember, Peter, what, what happened in, uh, after Gethsemane, right? He, he was a bold man. He was a, he was a man that goes fishing and doing everything and every talking. And uh, a maid came, a little girl, made him a lot of fear. You were there. I'm not. I'm not Peter. <laughs> she, was, she was feeling. And he's writing this now. And, you know, we know that you remember, that according to, to history, how Peter ended his life. He was crucified upside down. So Peter had fear, but Peter finally died upside down because he did not let God. He understands, understood how to fear God more than men. And brothers, the heart is, has the heart has to be involved with the thought. And that's why Peter talks about it in the first place. The heart and then the reason with the people reasoning. But the heart is the first thing. We, we tend to make a division, right? When, when, but when the Bible speaks of a heart, it, it is speaking of both the intellect and the center of our emotion. For instance, you can read in, in, in Proverbs uh, 23 that you have to guard your heart. But that... You, all, you can also read in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, verse 1, that you have to think rightly. This is, this is the thing, but we know it is, they are talking about the same. The heart and the mind is the same thing. Peter presents the heart, and so in, in, in 1 Peter 3, 15, Peter presents the heart as a, as a sanctuary. There is a sanctuary in our, in our lives, and it is the heart. A temple where only one can be worshipped, sanctified, set apart. Peter said, sanctify, Lord, in your heart. So the heart is a temple, and only one person and only one thing can be set apart. And what is there? Who composes the congregation in that century, in your century, in my century, in my heart. Who, who are the members of that church, of that temple? I'll tell you. Desires, ambitions, motives, wills, all bow down to a sovereign Lord. Hundreds of thoughts and emotions mingle in this congregation if you go to, into this century, you are going to find these wholehearted worshipers, motives, feelings, purposes, dispositions, all of them. All of them. All of this does not change in any human being. Same in Jack, 
It's the same in me, in John MacArthur, in John Piper, and Wesley, and whatever person in the world is, is about the same in any human being. But the question that really matters is, who is the Lord of that temple? Amen. Who is the Lord? Listen. Listen, this is the secret to defend our hope. Who is on the throne of the heart? So Peter begins to talking to them about the tribulation outside. It's a problem in the heart. You don't have to be fearing inside. You have to wrestle inside. And inside there is a battle there. Whom you, will you fear? But out, at the end of that, it goes outside again because you have to show your faith. So something happened outside, but the battle is inside. And perhaps you're losing your battle. Perhaps I'm losing my battle inside. It's, a, it's an everyday battle. I have, to, I have to struggle. Brethren, I struggle with fear of men, with fear of many things, and I know that things outside are not the problem. The problem is inside. So who is in the throne of your heart? Is your son? Your children? You understand this? How? Oh. How are you able to defend him even if if them are dishonoring Christ at school, at the neighborhood. Because in the throne of your heart is not Christ. Your children are. Is it your work? You live for earning more money, more money, more money. And don't think because you live in the United States that it doesn't happen in Argentina. There's a lot of comfortable things here. You know that. It's different in South America. But people, the problem is not things. The problem is the heart. Is your wife in the throne? I don't want to get her mad. That's, that's good. That's a good option. <laughs> or is your husband? You're doing things for him. You're doing things for her. And you're neglecting Christ. There is your treasure. There is your heart. You are not able to defend your hope. Because you live for something else. That's the point. That's the real point that Peter wants them to know. But when Christ is there, everything is transformed. There are no feelings, no emotions... Using of the time, using the money, desires that are not, they are not, that are not affected by the glorious person of Christ. Absolutely everything conforms to the image that is worship. We are what we worship. You can read that in Romans 1. People are crazy people, animals, because they are worshiping animals. But then you arrive to Romans 12 and we are what we worship because our minds are renewing every day. So first thing 
is the, 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 the importance of heart. But the second thing has to do with the importance of obedience. And how do we know that Christ is indeed sanctified, set apart, revived, and the most important value in our lives? Set apart Christ our, as Lord, obedience. Remember what Peter said? What we, that we were obedient sons in chapter 1, verse 14, as obedient sons, and that we have purified our souls through obedience to the truth in chapter 1, verse 22. Well, Peter calls, calls him Lord, sanctify Christ as Lord. Now, in the first century, you know, the first century, this word was much more than an expression of respect, much more. Lord is a title absolutely familiar to us throughout the New Testament. In Philippians 2, verse 6 it is, and forward, it is, it is given to Jesus the name of Lord as God's response to his obedient suffering. So we call him Lord. It implies a position equal to that of God. Then that, the, the reason Jesus is Lord is also affirmed in Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess that Christ is Lord. Used also, it is used also in, uh, in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, and in many other, other parts of the New Testament, of course. And Jesus used that title. You know, when he said, especially it has to do with the verse in First Peter and obedience, he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? That is Luke Chapter 6 and verse 46. That's important how Jesus used that, the, the, the name Lord, the title Lord, to remember the disciples that we have to be obedient. So obedience, the importance of obedience has to do with our hope also. That is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, that no one can call Jesus Lord except by the Holy Spirit. That said, it means that, that doesn't mean that people can say, Jesus Christ is Lord. Because many people said that. What Peter is saying that no one can say really, Jesus is Lord and is Lord of my life apart from the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can put in us the need of obedience of God, the need of obedience, to be obedient to, to Christ as Lord of our lives and the Lord and, uh, in our sanctuary, in our hearts. That's, the, the Holy Spirit can do that, and only He can do that. He ensured that no matter how much, how much anyone calls Jesus as the Lord, the disobedient, disorderly, questioning life leaves the door of the sanctuary half open. To see what desires and visions, motivations, and wills are bowed down before any other Lord than the Christ. So you see people that say they are Christians, they are defending their, ho their, their hope, but you can see the, the door uh, a little open and you can see into the century and into the century there is no Christ. There are desires and visions, decisions, money. But they're bowing down to himself, not to Christ. 
Brethren, this is, this is the turning point in the, in the whole text. It, it is the contrast. It is what marks the distinction. Whom we fear. Whom we will fear. This is where man's fear is defeated by a greater, greater fear, the fear of the Lord. I remember we have a wonderful lakes in South Argentina, and there's a, especially a, a place where there's a, a, a bridge over a, a wonderful river, and you can stand there and you can jump about five or six meters. Uh, and so, so, so deep blue. And I remember my daughter, she was standing there, and all the family and relatives down there, come on, come on, jump, jump. And she was, she was like this, and finally she, she couldn't jump, you know. But people there was yelling, there, come on, you can, you can, do it, do it. But there was another fear that was much, much bigger than the fear of what they think about her and the fear of being damaged. So that's, that's the thing. There are two fears. Which do we fear more? It's a reality that people are thinking about it, persecutions and many things, but at the moment in, the, in, in our works, in, in our family, at school or whatever in the neighborhood, something's coming to us and I know if I say something that, that's going to happen, but God is with me and God is in the, my heart. I am bowing in front of him in my heart and this is what I believe about manhood and womanhood. <laughs> this is what I believe. How can you believe that? And God is like doing this to us. He's in our heart. Third thing, so obedience is, is a part of the, uh, of the important thing about the, the heart. And the third thing about it has to do with the importance of per permanent availability. Availability. Permanent. The key, the, the, the Bible says being always ready. Being always ready. We understand that, being always ready. I have this here in my, in my pocket. I am always ready to fix something. Yeah, you understand that? I, I go to the pulpit everywhere and it helped me a lot in some, some, many times in the church. Some cable or something happened. But I'm always prepared. And that what is mean. Always prepare. And you know what you need to be always prepared? You need, first of all, read your Bible every day, every single day of your life. You have to be ready reading your Bible. So people in Argentina, many Christians, would know a lot about Messi and about Argentina's soccer team, but Christians. But they can't find the book of Leviticus. They can't can't tell you what is about the book of Leviticus, Deuteronomy, or, or Psalms, or whatever, or find a story in the Bible very important to show or to share the gospel. Because you're not prepared. They are prepared to say, who is Lionel Messi? But no one, what do you believe about that? For instance, today with the class, Leviticus 18 is very important. Very important. You need to know that, and read that, and be prepared. It means to be mentally or physically prepared for some experience or action like one, like chapter 1 of First Peter and verse 13. Remember that verse? Anybody wants to read it? You open your Bible there? Chapter 1, verse 13. 
set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Tremendous. Wonderful. Those, it's, it's not a new thinking that Peter is bringing here in chapter 3. If we get that in chapter 1, you must know what you believe, why you believe it, and you must be ready, willing, and able, able to explain what you believe to someone else. Not only the gospel, but other things. I like this, this phrase of William Barclay. He said, our faith must be a first-hand discovery and not a second-hand story. That's wonderful. Our faith must be a first-hand discovery and not a second-hand story. What for? Are we, are we, are we in time? You okay? Are we okay with the time? Okay, okay. So what for? Two words. Two words in verse 15. Defense and reason. Defense and reason. Reason is logos, a logos word, logos in, in Greek. You, you remember what Paul did in, in Acts 17. He went to Thessalonica arguing. Dialogizomai is the word in Greek. Dialogizomai, dialogue, opening, declaring, expounding by means of the scriptures. We reason with them the scriptures. But dialogue with them. I mean, Paul was always engaged with people. You can't do anything if you're not engaging with people. I went the other day to buy something in, the, in, in, in a store, and I began to talk to the guy in our neighborhood. And he told me about his, his shop. He has to, to, to close it because another big one is going to be next to him. So he, he, he's a good guy, working a lot. And he told me that he earned the, the shop, his shop, because his sister passed away with cancer only one year more than him, and she died the day of his birthday. And then I turned the conversation about the shop, his shop to her sister. And he began to talk and talk and talk. And I asked him, are you mad at God, with God? And he said, in the first, first season, yes, but not then. And then I shared the gospel and gave, it, gave him a New Testament and I was preparing my sermon, and it was a, a good objective lesson to me that you have to be engaged with people and say, what's going on in your life? And stop thinking about your problems and think about their problems and listen to them. It is, it is the idea of 1 Peter 3, uh, 15. It is, it is what, what Peter is saying, involvement is inevitably how are we to dialogue with people if we're just giving them a tract or, or something, but we don't involve with them, talk with them about food, about whatever, the weather, and then ask questions. And then defense is apology, and the text used by apologists. Have you ever found apologists, that category, in, in the New Testament? Never. <laughs> You read Ephesians chapter 4 and you have teachers, pastor teachers, prophets, evangelists. You don't have apologists. I, I mean, 
I, I, I'm not mad with the apologies because they are a blessing. And I love the apologies that, ha that have a, a local church and engage in a local church. But those who are not engaged in a local church as these apologies like, a, a, like this is my ministry, beware of that. You don't find that in the New Testament. But these people here, these suffering people, should be apologists. In what way? Well, this is what Peter is saying. In the term has been, of course, misunderstood and neglected to the point that the church has become incompetent. Incompetent. There, let's leave that to the apologists. John Lennox or, or another ones. But what happened? We are, we're doing, we're, do, we're not doing well. Thinking there's, I'm a pastor or I'm a Christian, but he's an apologist. So it's a misunderstood. All believers are called to make apologetics. All believers are called to do apologetics, even if they are children with their friends. And the examples in the book of Acts of apologetics are Paul's defense, defenses before the authorities. In fact, you can find the, the, the term used in, in the book of Acts most than any other part of the New Testament. And what was Paul did in the book of Acts. Every time, every time, they demanded reason for his hope. You remember what he did? He told them what happened in his life. <laughs> this, this was the apologetics of Paul in the, New in the book of Acts. He told them what, what happened in his life. What Christ did with him. Look, Acts chapter 23 and verse and verse 11 and the Lord appeared to Paul the following night the Lord stood by him and said take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem so you must testify also in Rome so what it is apologetics is doing evangelism. It's not discussion about creation and evolution. You can do that, but you need to present the gospel. Yeah, that's right. This is how to be in my heart. If Christ is in my heart, I don't have any other thing to tell to the people about the gospel. Yeah, right. I don't know about creation much more, about evolution or whatever, but I know that Christ, through the gospel, can change a heart. Yeah. And this is the fence. So the last thing in our, in our study is in, in verses 15 and part of 15 and verse 16 and that hope is justified by style life. Lifestyle, no lifestyle. <laughs> lifestyle, style life, no. Hope is justified by lifestyle. I have it written here. <laughs> Remember what Jesus said? Wisdom is justified by all her children. That is in Luke chapter 7, verse 35. Hope is justified by lifestyle. Let me quote this guy, this man, Joe it again because he puts it better than I can. The fruits of the sanctified life are found in tender graces and dominant virtues. Like First Peter 3, 8 and following. And also in moral 
and a spiritual enthusiasm perfectly devoid of fear. Now, do you think, he said, do you think that where these gentle compassions flow and these stronger virtues dwell, dwell, a man will be able to give an answer to every man that asked him a reason of the hope that is in him? Think so. That is what the text is trying to teach us. This is what the text is, what is trying to teach us. Living a lifestyle that will make people ask questions. And let me explain this. This is what defines the title of the sermon. Living and defending our hope. Peter speaks of meekness and reverence and a good conscience. A good conscience, brothers, is the result of having consistency between what you believe and what you live. There is a little doubt that this is, this, is not, this, is, this is not a common problem in Christ's church. It's little doubt. There is a problem. Most of the problems in the Christ church today is the inconsistency between what we believe and the way we live, what we say we believe. And this is, this is why answers will, will be required from us to people around us. Imagine, imagine employers asking servants why you endure what you are enduring. I'm using the context of First Peter. Imagine people submitting to unjust sufferings without opening their mouths. Wives quietly but finally answering their unbelieving husbands as to why they live the way they do. Wives who ask their husbands why they continue to treat them so well uh, with affection. Why do they live like this? What is the reason you live like this? The answer to all those who are questioning is our living hope. And the real reason why we can be buried with a fork in our hand, brothers. This is the reason. Brothers, may God bless you, all you, all of you, and help us to live in our hope in such a way that not only we are going to testify of our faith, but we are like people that people people would ask why do we live we live that way why doing that why why you can't support sufferings and illness and deceptions i have a living hope it's christ jesus and i fear god more than i fear man this is my hope let us pray father we thank you for the living hope that we have we thank you for Christ Jesus, our Lord. He is our hope. Father, we know that we have a lot of 
problems around us in this world, persecutions, situations that, different situations we faced. But Father, we also know that we have a heart and our heart is a century. And in that century, there is a place only for one Lord. We don't want to be us. We want to be you, our Lord. We want to bow down, bow down our money, bow down our desires, bow, bow down our attitudes, bow down our, our marriages, our families, bowing down before the Lord in our hearts. Living in such a way that it doesn't matter what happened outside. But the important thing is inside. And inside is Jesus Christ. And we can, we can call him Lord because of the Holy Spirit. And our heart is set apart for him. And we, we trust him. And we can show that he is our Lord in our hearts. Because our obedience demonstrates that. And we are always ready. Because we are reading the Bibles. Because we want to obey you. And because we want to know you. And we are always ready reading the Bibles from Genesis to Revelation every year and learning about him as to we have to, to do it every day and also have the, the, strength, the strength to proclaim the gospel, not only when, when we have to do, but, all, but also when people are asking us about our hope. Thank you, and let us, people will find us with a fork in our hand, the blessing fork that tells everybody that the best is yet to come. In Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.